Now, you, you probably learned at school, uh, if you're of my generation at least, that John MacArthur, one of a, Australia's earliest colonial settlers, was, was founder of the local wool industry. Uh, you may also have learned that his wife Elizabeth was, was pretty hands-on, uh, a very diligent sheep farm manager. Uh, you may since have picked up too that, that John who had various roles in the colony, even even filling in as governor at one point, was, I was going to say, an unlikable type. Let, let's settle on bombastic. Uh, he often rubbed people the wrong way. Uh, and then, of course, there was his leading role in the Rum Rebellion. So quite a figure. Uh, did you know, though, that, that Elizabeth and John were both very widely read? They were interested in politics and education, trade, many other many other topics. They were very much creatures of, of the Enlightenment. And unlike many of their peers, the, the MacArthur's were, they were scouring the world of ideas, sources much beyond England or, or, the, or the colonies here in New South Wales. Uh, their marriage too was, was a complex and interesting relationship. Eminent historian Alan Atkinson has has been researching the MacArthur's for half a century, 50 years, and has just produced a magnificent book. It is it is a thing of physical beauty and, and a beautiful literary read. It's called Elizabeth and John, the MacArthur's of Elizabeth Farm. And Alan joins us from his home outside Perth. Alan, welcome. Thank you very much, Jonathan. Big figures about whom much has been written in the past. Why the need to to rediscover their story? Um, well, I think there are perhaps a couple of reasons, quite apart from my own wish to, to, to take a new angle with them. One is uh, that there are more sources available. The internet yields up a vast amount of new, new material, um, including material that's been well known in some respects, but is now far easier to get to. So you can cover mm. a corner and scamper around the 18th century in ways you couldn't before. But also, I think uh, you know it's it's 50 years now since all the sources opened up after the Second World War. The State Library, private sources, Mitchell. Um, and that that was something that happened all over the world. Really, there was a kind of boom in historical archival material. And uh, so it's time, I think, a lot was done in that period, but it's time now to rethink it and consider where we've got to. I was particularly interested, actually, in, in, in the whole question, which historians are only really just getting to, about how, how easy is it for, for us to understand the minds of the past, their mm. sensitivities and their, the, the, the interweaving of feeling and ideas. That's, that's something I particularly wanted to get to. And, I mean, as you said in the introduction, these two people were widely read. So there's a kind of infrastructure of big ideas which goes into the way they're related to each other and to the world and how they thought about their place, geographical, historical, etc., in in New South Wales. So it was uh, – they were profoundly interesting people. I mean, it's such an interesting interesting trick of the historical light to, to venture within the mind of, of the subject. I mean, so much history is, is the summary of people's deeds, their, their externalities. Yeah, well, I, I read lately, actually, in the New York Review of Books, that a statement, which wasn't contested, that only fiction writers can get really get inside the minds of their subjects. Well, I don't think that's true at all, especially if you've got 
good source material. And for the MacArthur's, both Elizabeth and John, the, the source material is magnificent. It's fast. It's uh, it's easily, in fact, very easily accessible now because it's been digitalized in the Mitchell Library. But it's and two their two homes still survive. Their original library at Camden Park, at least, still survives. An extraordinary library. It's close, and, isn't it? That's the thing about this history. Yeah. It's, we're just talking yeah. about the, the mid nineteenth century. It's 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 not remote. And 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 as you say, that this was a family that that documented itself assiduously. Yeah, they seem to have, particularly by about the. I don't know, the 1820s, I suppose they had more room to, to file away papers by that time because things were flourishing. But they began to collect papers, go, go, no, to sort and or store their letters uh, in a very assiduous and orderly way. They did everything in an assiduous and orderly way, actually. That was the secret of their success. Uh, and so they stashed it away, particularly the next generation. They knew both their parents were important. They were very fond of them, um, which made them made, gave a sharp point to the way they they tried to remember them. But also, they they knew they were important from a historical point of view, and they thought of Australia as having a history of its own. That's that's one mm. of the extraordinary things. Uh, you can see John MacArthur thinking like that very early. I mean, he's regarded as a British imperialist, I suppose. But really, it's extraordinary how they thought of this as a as a separate. There's a place with a destiny of its own, which might or might not stay within the British Empire, of course, but where we ought to be able to develop our own skills, our own sense of the past, our own sense of the future, our own sense of what government's for and things like that. Uh, they're really interesting people. It is fascinating because we, we, we characterise these people often um, employing our own sort of set of, of, of values, but how how they conceived of this colonial project is a mm. is a fascinating thing. Uh, there is a shorthand for the MacArthur's and John in particular that that's not mm. a very flattering mm. shorthand. I mean, can, can you describe that existing sense of this couple? Well, Elizabeth is uh, regarded as. I think conventionally now as the as the one who kept it all on track, uh, and she certainly did that. But she did it as part of a partnership, and I, I think I, if there's one thing I've stressed m- more than anything else in this book is that this was a partnership, and that might sound simple, but how does a partnership work on intimate terms over forty years with two clever, strong mind, both very strong-minded people? As I say, I think I describe her as luminously strong-minded. You know, there's one of those people you could see, obviously, the moment you saw her that she was in command, and and the same with John. And they were drawn to each other perhaps for that reason. How do people so robust and so sinewy in their thinking get on together over 40 years? That that was a, that was a prime question. So it was a portrait of a marriage but, or really of an intimate partnership which could happen between any two people. So that 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 was one thing that I wanted to explore. But um, the the question of character then comes into that. Th- these were cooperative people, if they could find the right people to cooperate with, and they, <laughs> both of them built on, uh, especially uh, both of them in diff- very different ways. Actually, this is where they differed. They they cooperated in different ways. So Elizabeth had a, had an enormous command over both men and women, including men of her own rank, you know, junior officers who came to visit them, etc. They obviously held her in high regard. John's 
intelligence. He was one of those people whose whose cleverness was so obvious that uh, just from the way his mind leapt ahead of other people's, that somehow he took command in all sorts of situations and people deferred to him for that reason or else they objected to him violently for that reason. <laughs> it's and the yet, fate of the intelligent people. And yet he's someone who, who, who struggles to find his path early in the colony. I mean, sheep is a very happy accident in his life. Yes, that's right, yes. It's... Uh, no, well, he, he, they came with the understanding, clear understanding, that they were only going to be here for a very short time. Uh, the whole idea to begin with was to go abroad and to collect money and, uh, and, and go back to England and set up as, as country gentry, I suppose, if they could, with whatever cash they could find. That was the standard way of using the empire. You know, young men normally, single men, would go abroad, especially to India, and... Uh, gather what money they could by whatever method they liked, mostly fairly rapacious, and come back and set up. It was, you know, that was how you spent your 20s, perhaps early 30s. Um, that was what they intended to do. John and they were, they were unusual in that Elizabeth went too. That was that was mm. not, not the done thing. But they'd married early and they couldn't be separated. Uh, but but so she, they, she in particular finds, finds great contentment in this place. She does. And that's, that's something I really didn't, I think, come from my own point of view anyway, satisfactorily to terms with. What was it she found about New South Wales that made her happy here, or so extremely happy, as she mm. said, of course, it says. Uh, I, I, I don't know whether she, she was a, I think there was something in her of a romantic frame of mind somehow, uh, a bit like, I mean, all sorts of, poets, etc., in the Coleridge, Wordsworth and whatever, have dreams about going off into the remote unknown and just living there. Uh, I mean, up the Lake District was their, their easy answer, of course, in northwest England. But Elizabeth seems to have valued that sense of retirement, as she called it, you know, exclusion from, from the busyness of, of England or even the busyness of Sydney, actually. Um, she loved visitors, but she also liked, I think, just to be on her own, including in the Australian bush. Which is an interesting thing of their moment, because this is mm. this is a time when people of that generation are just beginning to explore the, the notion of an inner life. Yes, that's right. Yes, and she does that too. I mean, that's really, I mean, I, you can just, reading her letters, if you read her letters over and over, which you can do now because they're digitally uh, available, uh, you get the sense of a woman, a highly reflective, uh, inward-looking person. You can see it almost in her punctuation. She has a kind of stream-of-consciousness way of writing. She didn't use right, real sentences. It, was, it, it reads as if she's talking, murmuring to herself quite often. It's, uh, it's can, a, you, can you give me an example of that, of how those thoughts oh, might flow? Uh, not really, without because I've, <laughs> I've adapted I wonder if them. there was something on the top of the use, head. <laughs> she didn't use full stops. No, I didn't. Ah. I already it off my heart. You know, she just uses these little dashes, little, little sort of like a drawing in of breath um, to it's separate. Very, very it's, poetic. It's all quite, yeah, it's it's all yeah. It's like Emily Dickinson. <laughs> uh, she's um, okay. She, uh, for those who know, she's an American poet. Um, but she's, um, yeah, it's it's strange. It's all perfectly intelligible. Um, but there's this, especially when she's writing to her sons in England, uh, her son Edward, both sons left 
both the older boys left when they were seven to go back to England, mm. which was the standard thing to do in those days. Governor King's children did too. Um, and they, John never came home. Uh, he stayed in England and he died in... Uh, in his when he was in his thirties, so she never saw well, him again. Yeah, that which was a ter- tremendous, a tremendous tragedy. But and yet yeah, they have a, a yeah. very lush correspondence. Absolutely, yeah. No, the, that is that's something to be which I try to tackle that whole question of is intimacy over distance. But uh, the other one, Edward, uh, also the older one, left when he was also left when he was seven, and he did come back a couple of times for short intervals. But he joined the army, so. And he needed to earn a living, and he couldn't do it in New South Wales. Uh, so, and she—he's more receptive. He's uh, more emotionally open, or, or naked, as I, I say in the book, I think. Um, and she writes to him in a strangely reflective and emotional way. He does back even more so, actually. Hmm. He's a very vulnerable character altogether in strange ways. So, and you get this sense of a woman writing into a vacancy almost. Uh, uh, because it's, but but a vacancy which, <laughs> if you can have a welcoming vacancy, um, you know, it's a, it's a letter which is only going to get him in about get to him in about eight months, six or eight months. Yes. So she she says to him, I, I I I it's hard writing to you when I don't know when the things I'm writing about will be over and done with by the time you receive the letter. It won't be won't be significant. Well, and, and in which the cycle of that correspondence is is going to last over a year. That it, the yeah, reply right. in turn. That's will... right. <laughs> yes, it's strangely unintimate, and yet mm. it it's it's like writing in a diary almost, and the diary sort of answering yes. back. It's, it's I mean, uh, reflective. Uh, uh, I mean, this, this wonderful journey you've made into the the lives, the life of the mind of Elizabeth and John MacArthur. I'm, mm. This this may be a foolish question, Alan, but what do you think would be on their bedside tables? What's their what's their reading typically? Well, John's reading was um, Roman history, particularly. He was very keen on on biographies of uh, of the great men of Rome, uh, Cato and Coriolanus and. Africa, Scipio Africanus, etc. Um, he, he 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 liked to model himself on a sort of stoic, tough man, a man who suffered because of the ingratitude of of the of the masses, etc. He was a play actor, hmm. and he loved he loved reading plays actually and going to plays. Um, he saw his whole life as a play, really. Uh, the drama of his inner life is very important to him. But so yeah, the, uh, I know he read. David Hume, for instance, the history of England. Um, he was very good at history, and uh, uh, he, he knew a lot of it off by heart, or quoted it, or misquoted it. He used to recite it to his children, the declamations, declarations of the of great speakers. In what the a past. character! Yeah, and, and Elizabeth. I, um, Elizabeth read. Well, one thing she did read, I know, towards the end of her life, was uh, stories of the French royal family and French court. She she was a strange woman. She she was she talked very easily to people of all ranks, as I say, including at the very end she goes she has these wonderful chats with a fisherman that she goes to visit in, in Watson near Watson's Bay. But she was also fascinated with aristocracy and the romance of um of the royal family, particularly the royal family of France, as I say. So she seems to have read a good good deal of that for of light reading, I suppose, but um, and she read gardening books. We know that, but probably not not by her bedside. Um, 
No, so yeah, she was she she was interested in the course of people's lives. Uh, she was interested in some of the convicts she had and, and how they made good. Um, there were so convict women who worked in the house. Um, so all of them were both of them were interested, I think, in biography, particularly just the, hmm. the way lives unfolded. Uh, and of course, that, that gave them a sense of their own lives unfolding, for that matter. I, I, of course, both of them. Yes, they are. They are filling the countryside with with sheep. Part of the great mm. colonial project, mm. which which mm. is, of course, the dispossession of its original peoples. Yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm I'm wondering how did they, how did they perceive that? How did they see that thing that they were engaged in? That that act of dispossession. I can't answer that precisely, and how painful it might have been for them. I know it did affect them. They had no doubt, either of them, that they were in the right and that they had a claim on the country. I mean, they they understood Indigenous sense of, of place and, and, and of possession of the land, and so did their children. Uh, they had no doubt about that. Uh, but they also thought that in the great scheme of things, the providential scheme of things, and they were both, they both believed in God, Elizabeth mm. rather more fervently than John did, they both believed that God had given them a purpose, and that purpose was to Europe, or as they called it, to civilise. Um, and they felt that whatever the pain involved, they had a had a right and a duty to um, to, to colonise. It happened to be for their <laughs> for their own good as well. But there was kind of a cyclical process. We prosper, everyone prospers. Everyone prospers, we prosper, um, in a in a European sense. So. And it's very important too to remember, although you know it doesn't doesn't affect the larger question. It's important to remember that uh, for the first thirty years, I suppose up to the early eighteen twenties, mm. there seemed to be a real possibility that uh, indigenous people and the invaders could coexist. Not individuals, not individual indigenous people, of course, because they were you know, dying off quite quickly. But that, that the two cultures could coexist, and that gradually. The indigenous people would be drawn of their own free will. That was the crucial and strange part, but of, the, of their own free will into the larger um, scheme being established by, by, the, by, by the process of invasion. There was, uh, I, there was a, an individual later on whom the MacArthur's got to know very well and were very fond of, both John and Elizabeth, uh, called Sax Bannister. He came out as Attorney General in the 1820s and stayed for uh, three or four years. He had very large schemes about uh, um, how invasion ought to work. Hmm. As he, and his, his slogan was, there must be justice at every step. In other words, we have justice, overall justice on our side because we are doing what God intends and it's inevitable anyway because it's already started and can't be stopped. Um, but we must do it in a way that brings the indigenous people into the under the umbrella of British citizenship, the citizenship of Europe almost. In other words, that we must observe individual rights at every point, uh, whether on whatever side they are, they're black or white, and anything else than that is 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 illegal. It's murder. Uh, cruelty, he said, of any sort is mm. illegal. Gratuitous violence is illegal, and it must be punished wherever it comes from. Uh, he, he's, um, and yes. MacArthur's were very interested in those ideas because they were elaborations of feeling, I thought, they think that they'd had for some time and never really spelled out for themselves. 
sex ban is to challenge them in their late middle age to to think about the process of invasion in a more detailed way. And John responded to that. I think he's getting too old really to respond to it in any kind of detail, but you can see him fumbling with it and trying to adjust his thinking and meet sex banister halfway. Do you do you emerge from this long process, Alan? This 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 half century immersed immersed in these lives. Do you, do do you do you find affection for your subjects? How how do they strike you now? What's your relationship with them? Um, I feel closer, I think, to Elizabeth than I do to John. I mean, I I think John's intellectual power is really remarkable. Uh, it's a it's a kind of whimsical, wandering power, but. It's extraordinary how busy and active and non-stop his mind was. I, I find him a bit daunting. He was, as I say, he was play-acting a lot of the time, including the haughty bit. He was, and that, that's his arrogance, uh, his apparent arrogance, his playing at roles sort of is, uh, is hard to get close to. But Elizabeth, <laughs> I feel, does draw you in. It's uh, And she has drawn others in, of course. So she's... She too is very self-sufficient. It's, um, you know, she asks you in some sense to keep your distance, but she also appeals to, appeals in strange ways. Uh, she's, a, she's a fascinating, I'd really like to write more about her. She's a fascinating person, really, at uh, that sense of intimacy and distance that you get from her. Well, perhaps, uh, perhaps there is a, a sequel to uh, Elizabeth and John, Alan. We, th- thank you so very much for those these reflections. What a fascinating couple. Much appreciated. Yeah. Good. Thank you very much, Jonathan. Alan Atkinson, he's the author of Elizabeth and John, The MacArthur's of Elizabeth Farm. It's published by New South. Uh, Alan's an historian best known uh, to this point as author of a three-volume work called The Europeans in Australia. And he has attachments to the University of Sydney, uh, New England and of Western Australia. ABC RN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.